AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning. Welcome to NSPS Radio Hour. Glad to be with everybody again today. Today I have a, a really interesting guest that I hope our audience will appreciate because we, as the old people in the profession, are always talking about how do we look to the future and how do we attract young people to the serving profession, uh, the fact that we're old, you name it, just go on down the list, and that's what we seem to be talking about all the time. And so today I'm really fortunate to have on the show with me Mr. Jacob Heck. Welcome, Jacob. Hi, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Uh, known Jacob and known of Jacob for quite some time. Uh, if I remember correctly, Jacob, you were at least during one year, if not multiple years, um, winners, a winner in our uh, scholarship competitions. Uh, yeah, through NSPS over the years, I've, I've gotten a couple. Um, and we were always involved with the student competitions when I was back at Michigan Tech um, in my undergraduate yeah, and um, I remember seeing you at at those uh, conferences where we had the student competitions. And for the audience, by the way, we're still doing that and excited about the one coming up next spring as well. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to work with the young, young folks in the schools. And I guess sometimes, though, Jacob, when we're talking about the student competition, we're not necessarily talking about really young people because we have quite a few folks who decided to go that surveying career path kind of after the fact, after they've been into the business a while, I don't know how many of those you might have had when you were at Michigan Tech. Yeah, I remember a few of them. I don't want to say it was half and half, but it was uh, yeah, maybe 30% were uh, returnees where they had gone off and worked in some other career and then decided, well, they want to get a surveying license, so they chose to go back to school for surveying. Yeah, and it's it's been a good uh, opportunity. Um, a little tough for folks who are out in the working world, but it seems like all of us end up working through school these days. <laughs> I guess there's some people who don't do that, but uh, pretty much everybody I do. Of course, you, you, when you and I were originally talking about having you on the show and sharing information back and forth, you were talking about sort of your first experience in, in surveying. Maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about that. Well, my, my dad's a surveyor. He works up in the Toledo area. And I, I grew up on the other side of the state line there in Michigan. So... Um, some of my earlier experiences were with him helping out on some local stuff. I remember one really cold winter. Uh, this must have been about 2003. I was out there and uh, holding the rod and this, that hard wind that, that blows. And, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I like being outdoors, and I like math, and it seemed like a really good combination of, of all of those things. Well, that's pretty impressive if you're first experience was one in the cold windy days because that's among the toughest for surveyors and uh, still like like the idea of it well enough so may, maybe we should start using that for promotion tell people they can <laughs> they can get out in the cold weather and of course i think all of us who are our surveyors we we may not look forward to it but but i think we do in some ways like the changes in the seasons and being outside i, I really do think that's always been part of the appeal Right. When you're working outdoors, you're not doing the same thing every day because the weather's always reflecting that. You you have to adapt for what the weather's doing, and it changes every day, especially in the Midwest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. We, uh, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, growing up in the western part of Virginia, 
you guys out your way would always get those big snowstorms coming off the lakes, and we'd brace ourselves for them, and then they'd hit the Alleghenies and die out before they got to us. So <laughs> we, the only ones we got came up the East Coast, it seems. But um, I, I, I'm glad for the profession that you decided to go this way because um, – you're you're one of the folks out there that I think is going to be a great leader for us going forward, and you've already begun to get involved in a lot of uh, experiences. And maybe you want to talk about that. I know some of them are perhaps personal, but some may be related to your. When is the when is the PhD going to be done this year, perhaps or uh, early next year? Early next early year. Next year. Wrapping it all up. Just out of curiosity, by the way, before you get into the other part of that, one of the things that we um, the leaders and probably surveyors in general are concerned about is not only getting young people interested in the profession, but you know where's our next wave of instructors going to come from? Um, and so I'm just cur- out of curiosity, you being there at Ohio State, and I'm sure maybe knowing other people around the country, are, are our fears unfounded, or, or is it true that we're not turning out a lot of candidates now? Well, you look at the program that I'm in now, and most of the, the students here are from other places. A lot of foreign governments will send their top guys over to get their PhDs and then go back and work uh, for the government there. Uh, but you do see a lot that stick around, and they they get very well-versed in, in geodesy and photogrammetry and the more hard science part of it. Um, but as far as looking forward for good educators. I think we really need to have good educators with a lot of good experience, somebody who's worked in the field and somebody who can uh, convey their experiences onto the students because most of the students coming through, they don't want to go on and get PhDs. They want to get out and they want to work and they want to be good workers and know what they're doing out in the field. Yeah, I agree with that. There, We have a situation in one of the schools right now where um, we're beginning to see the effects of retirements. And getting the leadership in the school to understand exactly what you just said, how important it is to have educators with experience, um, is it, sometimes that's hard, a hard sell um, to the schools themselves. And um, explaining to them, helping them understand why that's important is tough sometimes. Right, because so, when you go out, when, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, when you go out in the field and you're, uh, you're digging up a corner and you find three rods there. I mean, a, a master's degree or a PhD isn't going to tell you which one's right. It, it's the experience and, <laughs> and learning from the, the guys that have done it a thousand times. That's where you really learn that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. And, and I think you and I may have had a conversation when we were talking earlier. This, the whole idea of preparing ourselves to be able to make those determinations rather than use the math to just set yet another point there. So um, it seems for whatever reason, I'm not, I still haven't got my head wrapped around that yet uh, in terms of what it is that causes that to happen um, because all the teaching I ever got coming forward and in practice was you're, you're trying to get to the resolution of the, answer, of the of the issue. You're not just out there to set something in the ground that might work mathematically, and I'm not sure where that switch came on. Maybe it was just because of the ease of use of the technology. I'm not really sure. But it is is disconcerting, no no question about that. So in your um, travels, 
maybe you could share some of that with us through the rest of this section and in, in section and then into the next one. I know you're going down to uh, to South America uh, fairly often, so maybe you could talk about that. <clears throat> All right. So when I arrived at Ohio State, I had never flown out of the country. My only trips internationally had been to Canada, you know, a three-hour car trip, and. I, I arrived on the first day. I'm talking with my advisor, and he brought up, "Well, you want to go to Antarctica?" Well, sure, I'll go to Antarctica. And then, uh, yeah, next thing you know, I'm on a plane going down there through New Zealand. So my first field research experience in geodesy was in Antarctica, repairing continuous GPS stations and doing maintenance on those. And then when I came back, um, we got to talking. He has, he has this project in Bolivia that's been going on for some time now. So I ended up taking that over. Uh, it, it took some time, a few trips traveling with people going down there. But now I've been down to Bolivia 13 times, a uh, total of 351 days. So I, I make three trips a year, and uh, we're working on a lot of interesting things down there. Uh, we run gravity surveys and GPS surveys, so we're looking at land motion, and we're uh, trying to fill in some gaps with the geoid model down there because there is a lot of varied terrain. You have the high mountains, and then right away it drops off into the low valleys and the rainforest. So it has has its own challenges. And one other trip I've done, I, I went down to Chile and did some work down there earlier this year. So I've gotten a chance, <clears throat> I've had a good chance to see the world here. It's been uh, it's been something else. So are your, are your trips basically tied to the school or is there some entity that sponsors those trips or how does that work? It's research that comes in through Ohio State but it is funded by various government agencies uh, we've got NSF grants, NGA grants and that's what pays for all of the, uh, the trips down there. Yeah, that Antarctica trip sort of intrigues me. We were just talking about cold weather earlier. Um, <laughs> that must have its own set of challenges I would think. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's very remote. That's that's the big challenge of it. Uh, the the really nice thing is is that they they screen everybody before you go down there, so you actually feel really really safe while you're there. But when you're out in the freezing in the middle of the night, or well, I guess there really isn't night there. You, you have the 24 hour daylight during the, the summer season. But windstorms do pick up, snowstorms do pick up. But for the most part, the weather's pretty calm and. I remember a lot of sunny days there, so it stayed pretty warm inside your tent. And it was actually seemed a lot warmer than the UP does, at least in the winter. <laughs> yeah, it can get pretty chilly up there too, can it? Yeah, yeah, it can. And uh, well, that was good practice for shoveling snow because that's what you have to do there. Because <laughs> right, all, all the sites so, get buried, and uh, and even for drinking water, you have to shovel your own snow. Is there some entity that controls things there? I mean, for example, if you go to another country, you have to sort of deal with the government, I guess, but the government of that country, I mean, is is there anybody that does that for Antarctica, or is it con- who's it controlled by? Uh, it, it's controlled by whoever's sponsoring the projects. So I was working on American projects, so it had to go through the U.S. government. Um, when I flew into New Zealand, we had, we had a couple of days there to get fitted for gear uh, because you are required to carry certain things with you. They provide you with a coat and with boots and all of the different layers that you need just so you have it so you don't or so that you're a lot less likely to get into a, a bad situation. Uh, so we got so there and then I, we well anyway we flew down on uh, Air Force planes to get there. I see. 
so when you're when you're there, you are kind of constrained by, I guess the 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 government, our government that controls a certain area, and I guess other governments have places where they are operate. And is there interaction between them at all? Yeah, yeah, there is, and I I think especially in search and rescue situations, I think if somebody is stranded, then whoever's closest will go there. It doesn't matter who. Um, but as far as logistics go, that that's done by the Air Force uh, for us to get in. I see. So there's, um, I'm sure that people are doing different things at different times. So you could be working on something, somebody else be working on something else. But uh, th- they ever have any kind of joint efforts, or is everybody working kind of on their own? No, there's a lot of joint efforts. The project that I was on, the, the Polnet project, that has collaborators from. Uh, I don't know, 20 different countries. I, I forget the number. But in camp, we had people there from different places, from New Zealand, from uh, uh, we had a British guy stop through. I hate to interrupt, Jacob, but we got, we got to go to break. So let's do that. We'll come back and pick up with that. Sorry about that. Okay. No, it's all right. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back with Jacob Heck talking about some of his experiences, and as we go through the show, we're going to get his perspectives uh, as a as a young surveyor and uh, some of the things he's gotten into here most recently as well. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, to hearing more about that as we go along. And before we went to break, of course, we were talking about a- Antarctica, and uh, as I was t- saying to Jacob in the break, that's always intrigued me. Um, I'm not sure it intrigues me enough that I would actually want to go, but <laughs> it seems like a long trip and uh, perhaps maybe pretty hard work most of the time, just getting your work done and, and staying warm. Are there times when um, it's it's 
decent, I, well, I don't even know how to phrase this, decent weather, I guess, that, that it's not so terribly cold? Oh, I thought it was decent weather when I was there in December and January um, because you have the 24-hour sunlight, and we were sleeping in tents, but your tent got warm because the sun's always shining on it. I remember one of the researchers there had a thermometer in his, and it, it was 87 degrees one time when he woke up. And so oh, my it, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so it it feels warm, uh, but the daily temperatures out there, we were at a place called Bird Camp that's at about uh, 80 degrees south and 120 west. The approximate coordinates out there on uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet, and uh, I, I was out there for a few weeks. And uh, the temperatures, though, they were it was, it was a very warm 15 degrees. So yeah, at well, night it got down to probably about zero. But it it's like uh, it's the kind of effect that you see in the springtime up in the UP where up in the, the Upper Peninsula gets snow for months and months and months. But every once in a while in late March, we'll get that one warm day where it gets up to about 35 and it's sunny and everybody's wearing shorts. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been around a couple times when, when that's taken place, and, and it's uh, we're still freezing to death back here in the <laughs> central part of the, uh, the East Coast. So, uh, But it's all relative, right? I mean, it, everything that you do is, is relative. To your surroundings and what you're accustomed to, so people right. get used to whatever their environment is and and move on. So with the with the work in Chile, um, was that again another uh, uh, project through the school, and was it tied to our? I mean, I don't, again, I guess our government must have had something to do with you guys getting there, but maybe not. Maybe it's all done through the schools. Well, OSU has had a long partnership with uh, the military agency down in Chile, the uh, Instituto Geográfico Militar. So we we work directly with them, the research group that I'm in, and we've been doing earthquake studies down there since the early 90s using GPS, and now we're branching off into some seismic-type stuff, and we have collaborations with some of the universities down there. Uh, but when I flew down there, I, I knew the guys that I was working with already because we had communicated over Skype a lot. We're always working on some little project or another. And uh, yeah, I got there and then drove the southern road, and I got to see some pretty amazing sights down there with the glaciers and the mountains. And for somebody from Monroe, Michigan, where it's pretty flat there, uh, you don't get to see that too often. So, it's, uh, yeah, it was a good trip. Now, in, in that one, were you working with some... Uh some local entities. I mean, you mentioned that that there was some collaboration. Was your project a joint one, or they were just assisting to get you there? No, it, it's a joint project. We're all working together on this and trying to improve the national infrastructure of Chile, and also uh, do some scientific research type work for us, uh, looking at parts of the earthquake cycle and, and things like that. And and in that particular one, I'm trying to think of my geography here in terms of of Chile and how far south it is. I mean, it, I guess are they fairly close to where we are? Well, it's a pretty long country, though. I guess isn't it? If I think about it, is it can it covers a really long. So I guess it probably has something from relatively temperate climate on down to being pretty cold most of the time. Yeah, and it's all along the coast, too, so you do get that regulation. It's not a very mm-hmm. wide country, but it is a very long country, and it goes from about 20 degrees south, and the southern tip's at about 55, I think. 
Uh, so Santiago, the capital, is at, at about 35. They have the, the really warm summer days, but they have the cold winter days also. And where I was at working uh, was down in Patagonia. It's a very rainy region. So they do get cold in the winter. They get a lot of snow, but it's not the cold that we're used to here in the in the more continental climates. Um, yeah, may, maybe more in Virginia, but... Um, um, yeah, the the summer days are are nice. They tend to be rainy, but they're nice. You get into fall, it it dries out a little bit, but the climate's nice. And then in the winter time, you have heavy snows, and it's always wet. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking you were talking about that thirty five. That's that's not terribly different from like our mid Atlantic, right? Right. Yeah, it's about, it's about the same. It probably is about because uh, what's the state line between North Carolina and Virginia? Is that thirty four? Is that thirty five? Yeah, it's thirty somewhere around thirty four, thirty five. So it's pretty close. Okay. Yeah. So in 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 that situation, I'm sure like with ours, your temperature variation sometimes how uh, are dependent on how high above you are sea uh, above sea level you are also, <laughs> you know, because we're 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 at the same thirty five, but. Virginia Beach certainly isn't like the mountains in the western part of Virginia, <laughs> so um, I, I can see where you would have that that same kind of situation. Yeah, especially so, in Chile because it goes from you have sea level on the coast, and then you go inland a couple about two hundred miles, and all of a sudden you're in these high mountains higher than anything we have. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, because they again here on the east coast, our mountains are so old we're pretty short, but out west. Are they? Um, they're probably higher than even our western mountains, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. And, and Chile has mountains up to over twenty thousand feet in some places, and actually Bolivia does too. A lot of the places where I work at in Bolivia are up on the Altiplano, and the Altiplano is about twelve or thirteen thousand feet. At the city of La Paz, for example, the city of over a million people, that's at twelve thousand feet, and that's some of our highest mountains that we have in the contiguous U.S. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty interesting. Well, going there 13 times, are you a citizen yet? <laughs> no, no. You're, you're still a visitor, huh? You're still, still a visitor, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lose my, because uh, you'd have to swear off U.S. citizenship if you take. Oh, sure, yeah. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> part, but it just, since having been there so long, it's, uh, it's almost like uh, you probably visited there as much as Grandma's house, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, I make a pretty good tour guide down there. I've, I've seen all parts of the country, at, uh, all corners of it, the high mountains, the little rainforest, and even the remote corners where when I get in a taxi down there and start talking with the cab driver, they're, they're usually pretty impressed with a lot of these places. Have you had any opportunity in any of these places to talk about surveying itself with anyone and how it is similar or different from the way we do things? For the land, I mean. Do you ever get to talk to people about that? Uh, especially in Bolivia, I've been doing that the last couple of years. So I, I taught a short course in the Military Engineering University on uh, just using some mapping software, but it's in the geographic engineering career. That's how they call it. Uh, but they also have a military topography school, so that, that trains more of the technicians that will go out mm -hmm. and use the in instrumentation. It's very um, yeah, very technical mathematically how to, um, and uh, technologically, too. Um, but the geographic engineering is more reflects our surveying engineering curricula here in the U.S. And it, you do see some, some differences there uh, because 
the word engineer has a very high social standing in Bolivia, and the word surveyor, they think more of just the field guy going out there, even though the geographic engineer is doing more what we think of as surveying. Uh-huh. Uh, but then you look at their, uh, they don't have a, um, I guess they kind of have a meets and bounds system. It's definitely not a PLSS system, and it's it's difficult to uh, to do anything like that with the way the mountains are. But you, when you go out in the countryside, people have their, their claim lines, and what they do, they'll usually mark it off by using tree branches or something. So it's like everything has a fence line if it's been claimed. Um, so the, but, the it's, it's more, it's sort of a, a possession type system. Uh, so if you, you, you have your lot and you have the fences or whatever, or whatever marks your boundaries, uh, I guess I'm just, I mean, here obviously we record deeds and we follow trails and, uh, trails of evidence, I mean. Um, and I, I didn't know if they had that kind of a court system and maybe that's beyond what you were getting into, I don't know, but. Well, it, it is beyond what I've been getting into, but I have talked with landowners, and, and, and I've been asking those kinds of questions, and as far as I've seen, it, it's very possession-based, um, and they they don't seem to have that, that office of records, office of deeds like we do. It's, this is my land, and that's it. <laughs> I, here, I grow my crops here and have my house, and this is my land. So it's one, a system sounds like that. It's It's sort of a passed down from one generation to the other, and then other people respect each other's boundaries, so to speak, more so than perhaps our system where the way we write things down can cause confusion, even if the people are at harmony on the ground sometimes. <laughs> right. And it really depends on where you go out in the countryside, where you get the families that have been there for hundreds of years. Then it, it's very much like that. This is your property. This is his property, and I have no issue with it. In the city, though, I think you do run into some of those things because land is precious, and people are buying buildings, and the cities are getting built up, the skyscrapers and everything. Uh, but also, you have a lot of land movements there too. So a landslide could come in, and then all of a sudden, what was a lot is no longer. And you you do oh. see that where entire neighborhoods are are gone after a rainstorm or a really serious event like that. Yeah, and I can see where if there was an attempt to put back the the land puzzle, as I like to cause it, call it, could be pretty difficult if you don't have records. Right. That would uh, that would certainly cause its own its own set of problems. And I can see the city thing too. Um, you know, we've gotten involved recently with the international property measurement folks and on how you measure things. And when I say how, I don't mean your techniques. It's more what you measure. And they're looking for some sort of an international standard. The first part of it's been on buildings, on uh, you know office space and that kind of thing. They'll eventually maybe get to to uh, to land. But it's really more about defining from one place to another, determining what it is you're measuring. So if I go measure something in some other country or some other part of the of the U.S., for example, we're all talking about the same thing. I think that that causes a lot of issues, and I can see where that when you were talking about the things in the cities, I can see where that kind of thing could make it could be a pretty big issue. No question about that. Well, we're close to our second break, so I don't want to get too deeply into anything else. 
uh, in the last few seconds that we've got here. But when we come back, maybe we can close out this piece or if there's more we need to talk to about this. And I want to get your thoughts on on going forward and getting youngsters involved in surveying and that kind of thing. So, um, and, for, and this this new thing that you've become part of with, with NCWS, that's pretty exciting. So let's go to the break and we'll be right back. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. One thing I did want to follow up with, uh, with Jacob as before we move ahead is during the break we were talking a little bit about determining land ownership and boundaries and those kind of things. And so the question that came, came to my mind was who are the surveyors, who does that work, and how do they get qualified or recognized? And, and if you could share that, Jacob, I think the audience would find that interesting. Yeah, so from the people I've met and talked to down there, the system is a lot different from us. Uh, we have, uh, in general, a four-year of education, four years of experience, and a couple of examinations, and then you can get your license. But down there, or down in Bolivia, the way that they have it set up is you go on for your bachelor's degree, and it's a five-year degree program that culminates with, uh, with the uh, senior thesis. And once that's all done, then you're considered an engineer. So whether you're an electrical engineer or environmental engineer or civil engineer or, or geographic engineer, um, as is the case with uh, what about their equivalent of surveyors are in the sense that we think of surveyors, uh, it's five years of school and you're an engineer. 
And so then you are able to practice um, and provide services to the public in general or to the government only, or do you know anything about that? I was just curious. Uh, I, I don't know all of the specifics of that, but they do have a lot of private firms there and government firms. So they have private engineers, government engineers, and they all need to have engineers. So Right. So I, not, I, not really all that much unlike us in that way. Right. I, I don't see a lot of people graduating, and right away they have their business. Right. So that that takes time, just like here. Even once you become licensed here, you're still learning. You're still building your way up uh, to... Uh, be able to run a business or, or have more responsibilities. So, yeah, and as a matter of fact, that's that's a pretty good segue into our, our next little topic I want to talk about, and and that is um, this whole idea of attracting people to the profession. We're we're hearing now after sort of this recovery that's coming forward from our our last downturn in the economy. Um, I hear this almost every day. Uh, and it's really on the technician side, but people are really having a hard time finding folks to come in and be at the technician level. Um, a lot of them got laid off during the tough times, and oftentimes when that happens, they they come back, but apparently that isn't happening this time. And so, obviously, we as a professional organization and as a person in general are interested in how are we going to attract people at, at really all levels of um, part of the our part of the process, whether it be the technician level or the the licensed person level? And uh, I'm I'm really interested in your thoughts about that. And and maybe it's a good time to talk about the the uh, NCES thing as well, uh, if that all ties together. Uh, actually, it does, and that was one of the big conversation topics throughout the, the entire NCWS meeting back in August. So um, in August, I attended the, the National Council of Engineers, or of Examination for Engineers and Surveyors uh, annual meeting, and that was out in Williamsburg, and that's where I ran into Kurt again um, for the first time in a few years. But I, I've been selected as part of a, um, a young professional and emerging leaders committee is what it's called, and we're and that's one of our tasks. I mean, one of our objectives is come up with some kind of plan, some kind of uh, some ideas about how do we attract young people, how do we get them involved, not only with surveying but with engineering also. Even though surveyors are really hurting for people right now, um, so that's one of the tasks. And one of the first thoughts that I had, kind of a little off the wall, but you know, every time an Indiana Jones movie comes out, uh, enrollment for archaeologists in the universities skyrockets. Just like every time a Jurassic Park movie comes out, the same thing for paleontologists. So that, that might be a way of bringing it into the main mainstream if uh, Spielberg makes a movie about it. But uh, I, I think some of that is too. People don't know what we do, and they they think we're just a guy on the side of the road taking pictures. Of it. Um, with a total station on a tripod, and it's a lot more complicated than that. There's a, a lot more opportunity, and it's really cool stuff that we get to do, and I think we need to get that out to the community somehow. Yeah, and I think that's that's been our perpetual challenge, is how do we do that? I mean, we've for years we've, we've talked about, um, maybe in a little different terminology, 
about this same thing. They're not even 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 when people coming in were were abundant, we still had that people don't know who we are, what we do. You know, are you guys uh, laying out a new airport here in the middle of town, or <laughs> what, whatever, um, t- taking pictures or whatever you're doing, and and hopefully this group that you're involved in is going to be uh, helpful in framing the the way that we can get that message out and what that message has to say. Um, I was listening to something. Um, actually, my wife was playing something back to me over the weekend from a speaker she'd listened to not too long ago, and he was talking about how do you talk to the younger generations? How do, how is it you you converse with them about anything, but in particular within the workplace? And he said, for those of us who were baby boomers or maybe a little later on, we went into a new job, and our boss would say, "Okay, here's what you need to do." You're going to run the 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 mimeograph machine, or you're going to operate the computer, or you're going to um, take orders on the phone, or whatever your job was going to be, and and that's really all they talked to you about. And so it was hard to see down the road. He said, "Now, if you go talk to young people, you have to tell them what the end game is, and then work back. These are the steps you take to get there." I thought that was a really interesting perspective. Um, and and I'd like your thoughts on that in terms of if you see that as as a valid way to go, perhaps um, in in trying to, for lack of a better term, sell our profession. Well, I, I think that is a good good way to think about it, and I know that's a lot of the ways how I think is like that. I have to think what's the end result going to be if you're going to ask me to do this. Why is it just busy work? I, I have to see the the overall. How is this contributing to the grand picture? And I, I think we might be taught that <clears throat> more going through school than in the past. Because uh, when I was coming through, uh, going through elementary and, and high school, um, that's some of how we, some of the things that we were shown were were like that. And uh, I really remember in physics class when the the teacher finally said, "Yeah, don't worry about working out all these long." equations by hand like you used to have to do we're just trying to get the overall concepts here and then you can apply that tool later uh, can, right now you're just going through the learning process but it will all come together so that kind of gives the, the a little bit more of a broad perspective on it instead of just this is busy work or I'm doing it because the boss says so you, know, you, have, you have to do it because you want the end result you want to push this forward and um, you want to be a part of something big, something good, right? And and even even for us, like you know, we have that have a trick star program for high schools, and and the the idea of that again was to show an end game, so to speak. You know, here's 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 an example of something that you can work on that is part of this solving this overall problem. That probably hadn't been as, as successful as we wanted it to be. We we attract a lot of kids every year, and they, they want to participate in the program. Not too many of them come into the profession, although a few do. Um, so I, it's just such a big challenge to, as you said, how, how do we frame that message? How do we get it out? And I think one of the biggest adva- advantages of setting up this group, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that group itself and, and how many people are on it and how they sort of made their selections, but... Um, 
framing that message, I think, and what are the right mechanisms? You know, we we sometimes have difficulty with using all the latest in technologies and that people are using and looking at as they're walking in front of you crossing the street without picking up their head and that kind of thing. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm interested in your in your thoughts on that too, as you know, from from that perspective. Uh, it, you need to get the get the ideas out, and I think we have to reach the kids at, at young ages. I, I think probably seventh or eighth grade is a really good chance to really uh, get the word out to them. That way, they see that oh, well, well, what I'm studying can lead to something in the end, or or this is something really cool. I'm really interested in this, and I haven't thought about it before. Because sometimes by the time you get into high school, sometimes it's too late, sometimes it's not too late, but reaching them early is one thing that I think will gather a little bit more interest and just kind of get it into the culture that way, too. If if every eighth grader knows what surveying is, well, we're more likely to get more surveyors. Um, yeah. I would agree that that's very true. And finding out how to, to get that across that, at that age, obviously, is as an important thing. Um, we got a couple minutes left before the break. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the makeup of the of the group. There, am I I'm correct? Are twelve people who were selected? Right. We we've had twelve people selected for this group, this emerging leaders team, and they come from all walks of of uh, surveying and engineering licensure levels. We have a couple of engineering students. And then a few EITs, some PEs, uh, uh, one PS, and two SITs, and myself being one of the SITs. And actually, the PS was on this radio show, I don't know, a couple months back, DJ uh, yeah, Robert. Yeah, so. yeah from, from Louisiana. Yeah, he was on. Yep. So we have a, a nice broad makeup across that part of the board, but we also have a broad makeup across the country. There's a couple people from California, a couple from New York. Um, and actually two from right outside of New Orleans, which I thought was interesting. But uh, we have people from Virginia, from Ohio, Minnesota. It's uh, a pretty broad. So we're getting the regional perspective on it as well as the level perspective on it um, because we are the people that are going through now and taking the exams and trying to, to obtain licensure, whereas the people who are writing the exams and administering the exams these are people that have been licensed for oftentimes years, so they don't know that perspective on it, the perspective of, of the people coming through the system now. And there have been a lot of changes lately. Now the, the FE and the FS are both computer-based, and the PS will be here pretty soon, if I'm not mistaken. So just that's, that's a big change right there, going from the old paper and pencil test like you still have in college going through. That's what you get used to taking and then you're prepared for that exam, and then you take the computer exam. So it is, you have that difference there. And that's very, very true. Well, we're 20 seconds away from the break, so we'll, I want to follow up on more discussion about what this group is going to be doing and, and, it's, and its diversity and all those kind of things, because I know people are interested in it. I've been getting a lot of calls about what's that actually all about. So um, maybe we can can chat about that as we uh, go into our last break or our last session so let's go to break we'll be right back attention surveyors seanstead announces the maggie the next generation magnetic locator 
The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Shonsted products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.shonsted.com. Shonsted, the best just got better. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we're coming back into our last session with Jacob today, we're we're talking about the the Young Engineer Surveyors group that's been put together by uh, NCWS and kind of dovetails with some of the young surveyor groups that are popping up around the country. And I think, actually, I think the criteria was even the same. Most of the groups that are propping up in NSPS or in our state groups have that same under 35 threshold, I believe, that was set up for for the young engineer surveyors group. So really still targeting that that same group of people and developing diversity. And um, as we were saying, Jacob, maybe you want to comment a little bit about the the process that it that to have been selected there was actually an application process that you had to go through right there was an application and i had read about it in the nsps newsletter and i i saw it and i filled it out real quick it was there wasn't too much to it and they looked for a lot of biographical information about you and then you had to explain why you wanted to be a part of this group and what ideas you have moving forward what you think needs to uh needs to either change with licensure or or uh, or needs to be tweaked with it. So I filled that out and sent it in, and I, I was selected. But they did explain to us what they were looking for uh, during the selection process. They had over 600 applicants for this thing, and only 12 people were selected. So they looked for content of the of the applications. They wanted to make sure that nobody was saying, oh, I, this will look good on a resume. They wanted people with good ideas. <clears throat> And I, I think they picked a really good group for it. Uh, we met each other at that meeting. We met on on Tuesday morning because everybody's flights got in late on Monday night, and uh, so we we were in the first roundtable meeting. And by the end of it, because of the the ideas were flowing so well, you didn't have any pause of silence, and everybody was contributing equally on it. And so that's how you, you know you picked a really good group on this. So by the end of it, by the end of that first meeting, people were saying, well, it's like they've known each other for 10 years. (laughs) So there was a really good synergy there, and uh, we did get to become pretty good friends, and we all have pretty good ideas. 
and we have a follow-up meeting in January, or it's scheduled right now for January, where we will uh, look at our assigned tasks, including how to drum up more interest in engineering and surveying, and we have a couple of other things that we need to work on as well, but uh, I'm, I mean, I'm real excited for this group, and I, I think that was the, the general feeling at the NCWS meeting from everybody. They're excited to see people there that don't have any gray hair yet. And what, what was interesting for me as I was kind of walking the halls or sitting in meetings or whatever, and, and people, like you said, a lot of people were talking about this, and um, what you said about the application process and going through the selection and then the development of the synergy, that's one of the things that came across so strongly was, wow, they they must have chosen the right people because they're in there talking. they got so many ideas and questions and um, and it was just really uh, rewarding, I guess might be the right word to say, to hear that. And and the thing that you just said a few moments ago in terms of people speaking out, not being afraid to speak, I, I think that's a big, big part, the whole no fear thing. Because so many times, and I'm sure this surveying is not alone in this, but it certainly is something that afflicts us as a profession. People are timid sometimes. People are afraid to express their opinions or step out with an idea that nobody else has mentioned. And, you know, it's kind of like you, did you ever, when you were in school, were you ever in the situation where a question was asked of the students and you you were sure that you knew the answer, but nobody else was raising their hand? So you were afraid to raise your hand too because you thought, well, I must be wrong. Because anybody, everybody else would have known this answer too, <laughs> and and it's kind of like that sometimes when you get in groups, people are afraid to speak up. So it's really refreshing to hear that that the group has developed so quickly that kind of synergy where they can can speak like that. I think some of that too depends on the size of the group. If you're in a big lecture hall, then you don't expect anybody to raise their hand. Every question's rhetorical, and uh, there's just too many people in there. But when you get a smaller group, uh, a smaller size like that, a classroom of 12 is, is great for learning for, and for interacting and asking good questions and answering good questions. And a group like we had, uh, 12 young professionals are working their way to become professionals, and we were in the, this meeting with, um, with some of the zone leaders, uh, zone uh, vice presidents and the, uh, the president and president-elect of NCWS, and it it was a very comfortable situation. We all came prepared with our ideas, and we uh, we really fed off each other. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that within the group, you probably had some folks who might not have gone traditional um, surveying degree program route to get to where they are, um, but they were, they had they had degrees. They just didn't start out in in surveying. Um, but I don't recall, were there any of the young people who had no degrees at all? I, I'm just asking that out of curiosity because I don't have a clue. Uh, for the NCWS group? Yeah. Yeah, there were two current students, and they were both, I think they are both within about a year of graduation. So, so they haven't taken the fundamentals exam yet. So they were listening to that side of the story also because these people are preparing for it and and. The preparation process is you, have, you generate your own ideas about how, to, how you sign up for the exam and what boards you have to go through and ideas about how to make it more ex- 
accessible for people and make it make it easier to get through the paperwork part of it uh, mm-hmm. to get to the point where you can sit for the exam. And the reason I asked the question about the non-degree is still across the country there's probably a plurality of license holders um, who are who are not don't have a degree. And the reason I was curious about that is if it was worthwhile to hear what those people had to say about the path they had taken, which wasn't fully the education, maybe part partial degree or two-year degree or whatever the case, um, just to get a sense of uh, what that process has been like. And obviously that the, the goal going forward is that people will go Get, get degrees, and the states will recognize that, and, and it'll be part of the requirement in all the states. But that, that's the reason I asked that question, because that's a really different perspective than those who have set out a path going through whatever college level they went through or are still going through. That's totally different than the guy or the girl who started out and went the experience route all the way through somewhere. And that, so that's the reason I asked the question, because it is a totally different perspective. But for, for most people under 35 nowadays, um, do you know of any states that don't have any education requirement for surveying licensure? Or have they all adopted at least a two-year degree? Um, no, uh, there are still some that, that, that are experienced. And actually, we, I was talking with somebody about this last week, as a matter of fact. You really have to look at the state laws because in some of them, the very first path is four-year degree and then two-year degree with some experience. And in some of those cases, you get down to the third, fourth, fifth tier, and it's all experience. So even though it's in the law, it's sort of caveated out so that they still have a different path. (laughs) Uh, So if you you look at it from that perspective, they're probably a plurality. The states still have a path to licensure that's not the four-year degree path. Um, and I'm not sure when that's going to change, quite honestly. Um, it, there's a whole learning process to, to to make that transition. I know pretty much every state I talk to, people are interested in going that direction, but it hasn't necessarily gotten there with everybody. Well, before you go that direction, you have to make sure that you, you have a program that's accessible for the people to go to. If the nearest degree program is states away, then that that can be an issue, and that can be a really big obstacle. Oh yeah, I mean, you take Michigan for example. You, you guys have the one at Ferris and the one at, at at Houghton, and I don't know if anybody knows where Houghton is, but it's way up there. Oh, it's a great <laughs> <the place. UP. laughs> yeah. Oh, it is a great place. I've been up there and uh, spent time with my friend John Matonich out in that part of the country, and it is a great place. But from a travel perspective. You know, it it can be quite a ways, and and really that's sort of a, a two two edged sword, uh, looking for opportunities for education. One of the things that's difficult is being able to get to a school fairly readily, and then the flip side of that coin is if you have so many schools with a few students in them, it's hard for them to survive. So you always have that argument: Are we going to go the route of regional schools, which is the way this all kind of started years ago? Uh, or is it better off to have more localized schools? And it's a it's a tough tough nut to crack to figure out which is the way to 
get sustainable programs, I guess is the best way to put it, because you have some really great programs out there, but without students, they, you can't sustain them. Yeah, and that, that comes back, too, to the, the experience requirements for the faculty, because if you look at a lot of these universities now, the universities are changing to where they're trying to phase out any professor without a Ph.D., Right, it's, yep. it's hard to have. How many people do you know with a Ph.D. and a surveying license? It's not many. And that kind of get back, gets back to what you were talking about really early on in the program about for some of the work that, that you need to go through in your educational process, you need somebody who has that practical experience, even if they don't have a doctorate. So that's, that has to be part of the, of the solution, I think, in, in moving forward. We got a couple minutes left. I don't know if you have any ad- advice going forward or thoughts for moving ahead with the profession. But if you do, um, let's let's take this time to let you do that. Well, the the students, or the the students, the prospective students, the prospective surveyors need to realize that there there are a lot of opportunities. And when I got into this, I never dreamed that I'd be traveling the way that I have or working on the types of projects that I've worked on. So we have to we have to really remember that it's about what you're doing, um, not necessarily where you're at <clears throat> when it comes to a career. And we have to remember also that the fundamentals are important, and that any technology that we have now is only a tool, and it will likely be phased out eventually. So it, we need to really make sure that we. We train people to not just be button pushers, but to have a deeper understanding of what's happening. But also, we need to make things not so strict to where nobody wants to even attempt it. Uh, coming in and, and then, oh, you can't get licensed because of this or this or this. And we need to look for more avenues and probably look more openly as far as what's considered experience or education uh, to make sure that we have good surveyors, but we have enough. Right. Well, that's a really good perspective, I think, to, for all of us to, to think about. And uh, I guess we just have to remind everybody in our closing seconds here is that today's GPS unit is tomorrow's gunner chain, right? Because <laughs> you never know where the technology is going. Uh, there's just no way to even think you could predict where that's going. So thanks so much for being with me today, Jacob. It's been great to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. So hopefully we can get you back again sometime. All right. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. And it's been, it's been great talking to you today, and, I, and thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.